Okay. Um, <clears throat> anybody in here a, you know, kind of a fanatical or really good fly fisherman? Anybody? Why, that wrecks everything. See, I, <clears throat> I have an Orvis shirt here, but I can't. I, well, I'm trying to make people think I can fly fish. I've only done <clears throat> practice in the backyard years ago to find out I couldn't do it. But, yeah, Casey's. You haven't seen this shirt, have you, Casey? So you need to come by the office next time I have it on so you can... Anyway, <clears throat> um, let's go ahead and we'll just start with prayer and I'm going to wait one more week before we, I make copies of the Apostles' Creed and we start looking, looking at that as, as one of the first um, creeds. So anyway, let's pray and then we'll, we'll get going. Father in heaven, we thank you for this day and all that you've helped us um, with throughout the day, guided us, been with us. Thank you, Lord, for bringing all of us here. And as we look at your, your handiwork and your footprints in history, I pray that we would be grateful to you for what you have done and continue to do. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> um, I wrote down some, what do I have here? I've got seven possible reasons for studying church history. Um, before we pick up where we were last week, and what I suppose we could say is about history in general. Um, but any, you may have some that aren't on, on my list, but what are some reasons for studying history? What's the value of studying history, especially in a day when it is more and more ignored? Anybody? Yeah. They were dealing with some really difficult doctrines at the time, and uh, why reinvent okay. the wheel and try and hash the Okay, <clears throat> we learn how they responded to, in this case with church history, bad doctrines, even, but in secular history, history, military history, whatever. You can look at mistakes that were previously made, um, how they responded to them, and learn from that. Somebody else somewhere started reading. Yeah, but? Exactly. Uh, it was Edmund Burke, who was an English philosopher, who said, those, those who do not know history are doomed to repeat it. We don't learn. One of the things we notice today, um, even today, just today, today, read an article, um, of the number of younger people who make the statement that why not experiment with um, socialism? It's never been tried before. Who says that? Somebody that doesn't know anything about history. But there you see 
the devastating results of not knowing history. We make the same mistakes over and over um, again. <clears throat> Any other? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, we're, we are who we are because of history. Or we can say, without an understanding of history, I don't understand the present. I don't know why we are like we are, our culture's like it is, or whatever, until, unless I know some history. Um, I'm really, I'm blind until I know um, some history. Yeah. That's exactly right. You don't know where you're going. Um, the idea that I don't need any rearview mirror <laughs> to have any bearing whatsoever on where I'm going is, is false. Um, anything, any, anything else? <clears throat> Let me see if I've um, enabled to understand the present, why it's shaped as it is. Um, <clears throat> understand any kind of society or culture. And, and, I'm, and I wrote in my notes here, large or small, for instance, meaning I don't understand Western culture, Western civilization. I'm not talking about Wyoming. Western civilization, I don't understand it unless I know history. But even down to, um, I don't understand parts of Gillette history or the, the culture here till I know some, some background. Um, every every uh, culture has all kinds of subcultures and every subculture has its own history and it's reason why it's a subculture of the main culture. All that's history. Can't understand any of it unless I have, you know, some, some kind of background. Um, I think it also provides a, a sense of identity and cohesion that comes from shared values, shared experiences, shared history. Um, age groups are like that. Um, you know, the, the kids today, um, it's not that I don't like them at all, but you know, I, I, I can't figure them out. And um, they, I don't have shared experiences with them in a lot of things because society has changed to such a degree so rapidly, um, technology has changed, everything is different. Um, I got, somebody sent me, um, you know, one, an, an email with a whole bunch of like 60s culture stuff. The cars that everybody was driving, the hairstyles, you know, the just whatever. Well, I look at that and I immediately have, there's a familiarity there, and someone of that age group who was going through high school, and junior high in the 60s, um, th there's a shared commonality there. There's a cohesiveness there. Um, and spiritually, Christian-wise, um, there is a... It's real, but it's kind of, well, it's spiritual, almost a mysterious sense of oneness with 
um, those who have gone before. We really, we have to remember that as Solomon said, there's nothing new under the sun. That includes the devil. The devil's only got four or five really good lies. They work pretty well. All he does is just reintroduce them in a different costume. But he doesn't come up with anything original. Um, and people keep falling for him. Why should he change? <laughs> you know, um, as long as it's successful, leave it alone. Um, but he, <clears throat> I think when maybe, and I think people, let's put, this, put it this way, people that kind of are wired, maybe, not to like history a lot. Um, there's question whether you'll go to heaven or not. Um, but we'll wait, you know, for other lessons on that. Um, I think it's real, at least to me, to read like the ritual for communion, baptism. You read the, you read the prayer um, before we uh, pass out the bread and the cup in communion, um, where you pray... <clears throat> May we perfectly love thee, worthily magnify thee, thy name, um, <clears throat> purify the thoughts of our hearts that we might do that. That's been prayed, that's a, that is a teenage prayer because that was written by Cranmer in the Book of Common Prayer in the 1500s. So that's just a junior high prayer. We pray or we repeat the Apostles' Creed. Its earliest form is 150 A.D. To me, there's, there's, a, there's a spiritual link with down through the centuries in all circumstances, people quoted that. Sometimes as a baptismal uh, rite, um, sometimes as a defense of their faith, as they face persecution, um, but to, to repeat that joins us with those who, who went before. Um, maybe just a couple more. I think we already mentioned. Um, we learn from past errors, including warning signs. Um, we're inspired by history. Um, when we... You know, I read, <clears throat> I love to read World War II history. Um, and when you read of the hardships and the stuff that these 18, 19 year olds went through um, and how they just toughed it out. Of course, we, I say the same thing that I know my dad's generation and my grandparents from generation said about me they'll never they'll never stand up under it you know um, they don't have the backbone to do it well I say the same thing I think of you know the kids today there's no way in the world they're gonna um, go through hard times like that um, sometimes a lot of people surprises um, but we can be inspired by what we see others have endured and paid what price they paid it inspires us to keep at it um, <clears throat> that's probably good enough. Um, so the, may, maybe just one last thing. 
we do see, as Christians, we look at history, and here's one of the reasons I think we ought to love history and study it, is this is the record of providential acting. Um, all through the scripture, we're told to reflect on the, the mighty acts of God, what God did. And when we look all the way from warfare and miraculous things that happened in, in warfare to, I think as we look back, Liz and I were, something was on PBS, I think, um, and it was, it was about the French and the English in the, like 1585 or whatever. Um, France was going to overthrow England. Um, and 1588 was the destruction of the Spanish Armada. Um, which just obliterated their whole navy, just, you know. And it, was, it wasn't the English guns. <laughs> it was a storm. Just absolutely destroyed it. And I made the statement to Liz, I said, you know what? Uh, I don't have any question. God brought that particular storm up and destroyed their whole fleet. Or maybe England would be Catholic today. You know, I don't know what the things God did in history. Washington would have been beaten for sure when he was trying to f uh, get out of New York. But a heavy fog settled in, and he was able to recover his troops under cover of that fog. Or which way would that have turned? We all know about Dunkirk. 350,000 soldiers um, stranded on that beach, except stranded is not a word we use anymore. Um, if you've watched much of the news, <clears throat> it's a very improper word to use towards anybody that's left in Afghanistan. Um, anyway, they were stranded there, and I just, I know God took care of it. But you know the backstory. The commander of the British forces just sent all he could get through was a few words of a telegraph, telegram. But if not, that's the only thing he got through, sent to headquarters in London. But if not, now I'm not going to put us on the spot to see how many of us know where that came from and what the meaning was. But back then, even in the secular world, they knew exactly what that was. That's what Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego said to Nebuchadnezzar. He said, you bow to my God or I'm throwing you in the furnace. Our God's able to deliver us, but if not. And his point was, I sure hope you can deliver us, but if you don't, we're not giving up, we're not gonna surrender, we're gonna fight to the last person. Storm came over, fogged the whole place up, Luftwaffe couldn't strafe and bomb on the beach, and it was almost three days of that till they got everybody off. Now, that doesn't, we can say that's history. Yeah, it is history. It's, it's his work. So that's another reason why history is important because it's a record of what God did and still does. Now, um, I want to mention something else. Um, last week we left on nearly near the, the business of uh, 70 AD where the um, 
Jerusalem was destroyed and the temple worship was temple was destroyed. Judaism was broken as far as its headquarters and they were scattered. Um, and that really gave a great push to Christianity, not only shedding its uh, husk of Judaism, being really merely one sect within Judaism was essentially what it was. Um, that pushed Christianity out on its own. But there was some, some things that happened there too that helped, actually helped in the spread of Christianity. Now, um, one of them was the dispersion of the Jews. That had been going on for some time earlier. But, and the earlier dispersion of the Jews meant that in virtually every single um, city of any notoriety at all in the Roman Empire and all around the Mediterranean basin, there were Jewish synagogues. Well, when Paul began his missionary journeys, he, he went to the logical first place. At least these people had memory or knowledge of the Old Testament, looking for a Messiah and so forth. And it was a perfect springboard and so Paul's pattern was always hunt up the synagogue, proclaim to the Jews there the Christ they'd been looking for had indeed come and was crucified, dead, buried, and so forth, and raised from the dead, and now forgiveness of sins is through him. Many of the Jews in the synagogues rebelled against um, Paul, and they were really among the, f the first persecutors. Um, the Romans were still kind of puzzled about um, this Christianity thing. They weren't ready yet to persecute it. The Jews were happy to. So it was, it was um, often Jews that ran Paul out of, out of cities um, or stirred up the authorities against them. But here's one little thing that I didn't mention um, last week. All through the Roman Empire, Wherever the Romans con, um, conquered and had a conquest over a culture or a country or whatever, they didn't bother with their religions in the sense of trying to stamp them out. They didn't care. They, the Roman pantheon, it's called, was they had hundreds of gods. All pagans have hundreds of gods. So what's one more? The way they approached it then was, we're not bothering you, keep on worshiping, just add one to the 470 you've already got, and that is the emperor. You're fine. There was only, in all the Roman Empire, there was only one group that legally enjoyed the right um, not to have to worship the emperor, and that was the Jews. Paul used both his Roman citizenship and his Jewish background in his missionary journal journeys a number of times because when they came when it came um, came in handy. So for a while, the fact that Christianity was viewed by the pagan world, who was unaware of much, that uh, that's just a that's just a sect within Judaism. It really was a shield. Christians. It wasn't until the fall of Jerusalem 
and Christians pushed out on their own and shed the cloak, as it were, as, as being part of Judaism, that then the persecution zeroed in on them. The Jews had been for so long so difficult even for the Romans to deal with them that they finally granted them that right, partly because they were a minuscule amount of people in the whole Roman Empire, but they granted them that legal right. So for a while that, sh that shielded Christianity because it looked like they're, they're just, they're a group within Judaism. So, um, but the scattering of the Jews helped spread the, the gospel because that was Paul's first place and he'd almost always get some converts there and then usually get kicked out and plant a church. But at least he, he had that foot in the door um, <clears throat> with, with the Jews. Now, um, here's some characteristics of the world that the gospel was sent into after the days of Jesus and even after the martyrdom of Peter and Paul, which was probably in 63, 4, somewhere in there, A.D., and the fall of Jerusalem in 70, okay? Um, that period of time <clears throat> also figures in the preparations for the spread of the gospel. They were just coming off of the people of Israel, 400 silent years. John the Baptist was the first prophet to break the silence of no vision, no prophet, no nothing for four centuries. That's a long time. I mean, what are we, 240-some, 50 year, years old as a country? Think about that. You add another 150-plus, and that's how long it's been since there was any new revelation to Israel from the Lord through one of the prophets. So they were primed to hear something. Second, <clears throat> um, Pax Romana. Anybody know what that is? Don't tell me, don't tell me. I want it yet. Don't tell me yet. But you count, there's one. Anybody else? Two, three. Well, there's at least, what, four of us here that are highly scholarly. Um, <laughs> it's just the peace of Rome or the, the, the peace that the Roman Empire imposed throughout you know, because everything they conquered. Really the Romans, they went, they rotted and it, it collapsed. But the Roman Empire brought qu quite a um, number of years of peace, um, relative peace their legal structure, their road system, um, really brought about good times, if you want to call it that. Um, it was a time of, you could say, peace and relative, relative peace and prosperity. Um, and the way emperor worship really arose was the that blessing, if you want to call it, of um, empire-wide peace, travel, trade, legal rights, and so forth, was being centered in Rome 
the emperor kind of became the personification of that peace and that goodness and that prosperity and that ease, okay? So it made sense then for the gradual rise, not of worshiping Rome or the empire, but the head of that who was the emperor. So that began to rise as another form of worship which joined all the other other ones just added one more. But it will loom in the future over the Christians. Okay? Um, <clears throat> but all of that structure and travel and uh, ease of travel really helped spread the gospel also. The trade routes and so forth. Um, there was also, <clears throat> even though they had joined, enjoyed prosperity and peace and so forth, um, part of prosperity and peace's fruit is often decadence and um, f uh, let's say moral and intellectual um, in their case especially flabbiness well the result was <clears throat> that the pagan religions were really kind of bankrupt the old philosophical schools. Athens was a shell of its former self as far as a center of philosophy. Um, it wasn't like there wasn't any going on. But the, the philosophical and um, even religious, and I don't mean Christianity, but religious culture was in a kind of a bankrupt state. So was Judaism. Now Judaism still at that, before 70 AD, had the temple. Um, they didn't have the Ark of the Covenant anymore. They didn't have, you know, the Ten Commandments. They didn't have any of that. Um, and there was a real bankruptcy there. <clears throat> so it was a huge religious vacuum <clears throat> that Christianity came into. And that bankruptcy on the part of everything else gave them... Um, people wanted to at least check it out. It, it, was, it was a new, new thing. Um, <clears throat> let me go ahead and um, just finish up a thought here that a bit later, as the rise of worshiping the emperor um, continued and Christianity shed its Judaism garb and began to stand on its own. It, it, sure, there was persecution earlier. Paul looks like Paul and Peter were martyred and so forth. But a lot of the, it was post-70 AD before a lot of the Christians began to come into clearer focus on the part of the officials that they were opposed you know, they, they would not say with the pinch of in, um, you know, incense that you would burn in the sacrificial fire at the annual um, sacrifice to the emperor. You threw, you know, the incense in and you received a certificate that you had worshipped the emperor and you had to say Caesar's Lord. Well, the Christians couldn't and wouldn't because he wasn't, Okay. For those who had 1,500 gods, who cares? They're fine. And you get your certificate, and then you go to the Bacchanalia feast, and life is good. <clears throat> Christians couldn't do it. 
And here's one thing we have to remember. This doesn't exonerate the, the Romans at all for what they did in persecuting Christians. Maybe it's just a little way to try to understand it. It honestly, I don't think I'm too far off here. It technically wasn't totally religious persecution against Christians. They were viewed as traitors. They didn't swear allegiance to the king. They were therefore social misfits, rebels, and they were undermining the cohesion of the empire. They didn't think so much in terms that they were worshiping a different lord, and so let's respect them for their freedom of conscience. They were, they were traitors and underminers of the very society that they were in, is how they looked at them. So it was a bit more, they saw it, rightly so the Christians did, as religious persecution. But a lot of the officials looked at it as more political. We gotta, we gotta get rid of these people that are undermining the structure of our empire. We don't want them getting in the army. We don't, you know, because they won't fight. Um, they have another kingdom. Um, so, <clears throat> yes, it was religious persecution, but I'm not so sure how much from the Roman side they viewed it as a religious fight. Does that make any sense? Um, now, <clears throat> I mentioned last week, and I think we just ended with it, as the gospel spread and Jerusalem was destroyed and they're suddenly left with no um, headquarters, as it were. The apostles are all dead pretty much by now. And that's why they had the critical need for a canon, meaning a rule of faith, which became the New Testament. And so what books belonged in the New Testament became a big deal. Um, second, <clears throat> creeds. Um, the creeds were organized statements of faith. And these were used both as when you were baptized or when you took communion, they, they, had, to, they had to quote those or repeat those as a statement of their personal faith, which then qualified them or would disqualify them if they couldn't or wouldn't say it for baptism the Lord's Supper, and also those were used uh, um, as catechism to teach the faith. Um, one of the things that, and I know you can probably, and you, and you can justifiably say, well, okay, then why don't you change it? Um, I got too much to do, <laughs> but this is important. We don't catechize our kids like the more mainline churches have a history of doing. Whether you're you know, Lutheran, Presbyterian, um, the Methodists, um, Catholics, you take catechism um, and then you have your first communion and some of those things. There's nothing wrong with that. And I think we are, we've impoverished well, we sit around and cry and bawl and pray and everything else about how we lose all of our kids. 
okay? Um, maybe there's a reason for some of that. Yes, they have a free will, and we have a wicked world, and there's still a devil. <clears throat> but we, as, you know, I've been in small e, the evangelical wing of Protestantism all my life, okay? Um, and we have, we have equated forms with formalism, and we've thrown it out with, thrown the baby out of the bathwater. In other words, ritual with ritualism. I'm not in favor of ritualism. Ritualism means I'm saved by mumbling through, you know, whether it's whether it's Catholicism through. Um, numbers of different, the, the Lord's Prayer, or so many of our fathers, or whatever, or um, other kinds of rituals, just the wooden repetition, and you say it enough times and fill, you know, check the boxes, then you've done your duty. Well, we rightly reject that because it is, it's, there's no heart in it. It's not spiritual, okay? But that doesn't mean it's wrong. As long as you keep a warm heart in it, it's good to know all those creeds and those rituals. And, and especially in evangelicalism, you draw a breath, gasp, your face turns white, your eyes at least partly roll back in your head at written prayers. Okay? Um, they're some of the greatest prayers they're written. By the way, I, again, growing up in that background, you know, we're, not, we're never supposed to pray supposedly written prayers, you know. You just open your mouth and let the Holy Ghost help you. You know what I mean? Anybody here ever read the Psalms? What are those? Written prayers. Okay. Um, to, you know, my father is in heaven, so I'm not trying to um, besmirch his reputation, but he and my mother came out of liberal, or going liberal Methodism. My mom was a fourth or third generation um, Methodist, and her, her grandfather and great-grandfather were Methodist um, preachers, and so, um, it began to go liberal, and so they left that denomination and um, became a part of the Evangelical United Brethren, which later merged with Mathis anyway. Um, but I can remember I was probably on oh, my teens, and in the, our church in Eugene, um, even candles on the communion table. That's those Methodists, you know, them liberals. Um, I can remember some, I don't know who did it, but every week or month or whoever, women's groups or whatever would take charge of decorating the communion table. And you know, you'd have orange leaves when it's, or when it's October, you know, all that stuff. Well, I still remember these big fat candles, and there were four or five of them arranged different heights, and they were burning on the communion table. Well, the services then were far more 
um, I grew up with a little bit more formalism. Um, the organist played some kind of a, you know, whatever. And the choir filed in. And then, you know, my dad, whoever else was on the platform, they filed in. Um, and then the choir would sing an anthem um, or the doxology or something. Um, and then later in the service, you'd sometime you'd sing the doxology. Um, the choir would always conclude with the Gloria Patri. Anybody know what that is? Um, glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit. Um, world without end, amen. Um, or the sevenfold amen. You know what that is? You know, the amen, amen. Um, that's what I was used to. My mom wore white gloves and very small hands who could pinch my thigh to where her fingers touched if you've messed around in church, okay? Um, I mean, women wore the hats and the whole business. Um, in walks the choir, in walks my dad, and there, there are these big candles on the communion table burning. And I remember he, he sat down and he kind of looked at him, got up, went over. <laughs> we ain't going to be them Methodists. You know what I mean? That's a mistake. Because we, we have become so generic and so unritual that we've imprinted nothing on our, our own hearts and our kids' hearts. The reason, part of the reason that God could get to me when I was far away from God, I would come home from who, doing who knows what and get into bed, lay there, still awake, and it's quiet, and of course back then, you know, you all the radio stations went off the air at midnight. You know, they played the they played the um, what do you call it? Anyway, and then you it's just static. Okay, so you're laying there. You can't you can't sleep, but you're you're thinking <clears throat> old hymns that start going through my mind, and they'd get to my. I'd lay there, and tears would run down into my ears. Um, because I knew I was far from God, but those, those words were so burned into my heart and mind along with the tune that I couldn't shut it off. I'm not sorry about that now. What are, what are we doing to, you know, brand into our kids' hearts um, the creeds, you know, the great prayers, the statements, the Lord's Prayer, the doxology, these things that, that touch our hearts. Um, this, is, this is one thing that I think we've, we've really um, erred on. But anyway, um, <clears throat> they, they knew we have to have some statements of faith that, that are memorizable that um, many illiterate, you have to remember that, many of the people couldn't read or write. Um, that's another reason Martin Luther with high illiteracy said, I will sing my doctrine into my people's hearts. 
the music, music and words, tunes, are wed together and God did it on purpose and it just goes, it loops through your brain. Um, and Luther knew even though my people may not be able to read everything I write or whatever, um, I can set it to music and it'll, it'll get in here. The third thing <clears throat> I mentioned last week too was called, we, we, this is a different term in music tonight, <clears throat> the episcopacy, okay? That is the bishops. Episcopos is the word bishop. It's the overseers who it was, uh, they were very careful to be sure as well as they could that these bishops were descendants, not biological descendants, but that they were descendants of the apostles, that the apostles ordained those who would take their places. Those people ordained this guy, he ordained so-and-so, and he ordained this guy, okay? Now, um, <clears throat> when we look back then at the early part of history, it is interesting how there's a fundamental difference between the way the Catholic Church looks at early church history and Protestants do. Um, it's not necessarily wrong either way, but because Catholics put heavy emphasis on the, uh, what's called apostolic succession, now, let me try to put it this way, and I'm not here thumping on the Catholics at all. Um, but the source of authority has almost um, unwittingly, but it has shifted to the apostolic successors and the church. So authority is the church. For the Protestant, as it's supposed to be, the source of authority is not the church or the bishop, it's the scripture. So for the Protestant, as they look at history, the most important thing that, that means that we're here, still here today is the canon, the New Testament, as a living word and as um, guarded by and applied all through history by the Holy Spirit. That's why the Protestant says the reason we're here today is the Holy Spirit, the Word of God, has preserved the truth, and that's why we enjoy it today. Generally, the, in, in the Catholic thinking, the authority of the church has survived, and the authority is what you are to obey. We will interpret the Scripture for you. You don't worry about it. We'll take care of it. You just take our word for it. And so it is a form of, it's really a form of returning to Judaism. Because in the Old Testament, the priest worshiped for you. He knew the law. He's the one that told you what it was. You, it was good if you knew the law. It was good if you could read and so forth. But it was, you had a minister on your behalf. He's the one that you went to and brought a sacrifice, confessed your sins, and so forth. Um, the notion of going directly to God through Jesus was, of course, not known then. Um, so Catholics look at church history even differently. They focus on the man's authority that's passed down through an organization rather than 
spiritual authority of the Holy Spirit who calls plenty of people that aren't in the apostolic line, <laughs> okay? Um, how many of you have ever heard of William Booth, founder of the Salvation Army in England? And it was kind of a, he was essentially a Methodist. I mean, he was out of the Methodist movement. Um, but he ministered to the down and out, you know, the brothels, the, the drunks, the people that, you know, just skid row. Um, and he had a lot of detractors when he started out who said, that's hopeless, you can't do anything with those kind of people. How can you build a church on a found, foundation of those kind of people? And someone out on the street accosted him, another pastor, I think, a preacher of the established church, Church of England, and was you know, kind of critiquing him and said, well, where are you going to get, if you do get any of these people converted, where are you going to get the preachers, you know, the pastors to care for them? And he pointed to an open pub door. He just pointed and he said, right out of there is where I'm going to get them. And he did. They weren't apostolic successors. <laughs> you understand? Um, they were just lost souls that God saved and called. Same thing with John Wesley 100 years earlier than Booth. Um, lay preachers. Um, so um, we, look, we look then, I think correctly, at a church that is kept by the Spirit through the Word, faith in Him, and it is the Holy Spirit who brings all things to mind, who Jesus left. He said, I won't leave you orphans, I'll send him. And he will continue in my place to lead the church. So it's the, it's not authority then of bishops that determined the New Testament. The Holy Spirit did that. Now maybe they thought it was because they were all bishops, but it's not true. The Holy Spirit led them to the books he wanted in it and the books he didn't want in it. Um, yes, they had a formula, if it's written by an apostle or a close associate, it's in. Um, if you can't prove that, um, then we got problems. But there's some that they couldn't prove that it still ended up in the New Testament. Hebrews, yeah, did you, did you, yeah. Hebrews is one of the chief ones. They bickered over Hebrews till 300s. For the, it's not that nobody bought it. Many did, but it wasn't a settled uh, conclusion that yes, it belonged there. Um, until some centuries. The Gospels were the very first and the letters of Paul. Now there was a few discrepancies as far as which letters of Paul, but generally the group of letters that Paul wrote plus the four Gospels. Those were the ones that were circulated early on. And then as 1st, 2nd Peter, James, there was some disagreement about some of those. 1st Peter was okay, 2nd Peter they bickered over. Um, you know, so... What did you say? Even Revelation, yes, Revelation. <laughs> I might have bickered over it. <laughs> I mean, I can't, well, I can't figure it out. But, um, yeah, they were, they were careful, but the main thing, they wanted to establish uh, apostolic authorship, but also, I, I know it was the witness of the Holy Spirit as he spoke through it. Now, we know that God speaks through good books written by wonderful men, and they minister to your heart. We all know that. But there's still nothing like Scripture. And 
It's, as, it's like the temple guards who came back empty-handed when they were sent to arrest Jesus. And they said, why didn't you bring him back? They simply said this. They didn't say anything about he outwitted us. He had more guys with swords. They just said, nobody, nobody speaks like this man. There's nothing that speaks like Scripture. And the Holy Spirit knows how to bring that to my heart. And we recognize, I think, the early church, this, this book, even if the authorship is a bit fuzzy and we're not certain, this speaks to us differently. It's God's Word. So those three things, the creed, the, the canon, and um, the bishop structure. <clears throat> um, and I think, I'll tell you what I think we'll do. Um, if there's not any questions or anything, we might just kind of wrap it up there next week. Um, let me throw in a couple things about the um, Apostles' Creed that we'll look at next week. Um, We'll look at the background behind it and what were some of the errors that they were trying to correct and guard against. But the earliest form, crude kind of primitive form of the Apostles' Creed was first seen in about 150 AD. And it was considered a product off of something called the Old Roman Creed, okay? Um, there were some differences in it, some things that weren't said. But it was clear until the, the, the final, I guess you'd say, official, you know, printed, laminated um, Library of Congress version of the Apostles' Creed was not until 700. So that creed was very slightly, but was slightly just tinkered with a little bit, and then something added here, and something deleted there, just to where it got, it got to where all of the heresies they felt in that briefest of creeds were covered, and what they wanted Christianity to stand for, they had stated, okay? Um, so we'll look at that, and then, um, after you, have, you, after you have the Apostles' Creed and some of those things um, that get formed in the, the 100s, the second century, then, you, then storm clouds begin to gather of persecution. It gets worse and it gets worse. There's, there's four or five or six um, emperors that were especially bad. And generally, even though Nero gets a gold star for all he did, generally the last one's considered the worst. Um, the Diocletian um, persecution was in 303. That's when it quit. But maybe a couple years. But 303 AD was the most severe. And I think there's a pattern there too. Um, it was kind of the devil's last gasp. Because it's only, say from 303, it's only 22 years later that you have the Nicene Council. It was called, and this is a first which we'll look at, it was good and it was bad. It was called by the emperor no less. There was so much Christianity in the empire that a pretty big, well, a big doctrinal fight 
between a guy named Arius and a guy named <clears throat> Athanasius. It was causing political upheaval in the empire. Um, so the civil, secular emperor called a religious church council of as many bishops as they could get there, and I think there were 220 to 240, to settle a doctrinal, religious, biblical issue because it was having ramifications politically, um, even economically, in the empire, okay? So you have this severe persecution um, and then Constantine comes to the emperorship and in, I think it was 311, canceled what was called the Edict of Milan, which outlawed Christianity. And he, he said, now it, it, can ha it, it has equal standing with any other religion. So the, the banishment of Christianity is gone. And then in 325 is when they called a council to settle this doctrinal issue we'll get into later. Out of that came the Nicene Creed. That's a second major creed that um, uh, elaborates and increases by, man, what, three times as long as the Apostles' Creed. Um, covers things that weren't even issues when the Apostles' Creed was formulated. So we'll, we'll look at some of that um, next week and look at the Arian-Athanasian um, whole issue and um, the good and the bad of, that's really the start of a merging between uh, state and church. And on one hand, you're grateful. We got, a, we got a Christian emperor, but you also got the state power pushing doctrinal issues, forcing people to maybe join. And it's in that period when Christian membership, as it were, or profession skyrocketed, and Christianity began to get pretty worldly and weak and watered down like skim milk. And then you have some other heresies arise trying to draw them back away from liberalism that were heresies themselves. And so it, you, you do what I think human history and church history is generally characterized. All we do is ricochet off of the guardrails. We, in, in human history and the church even, we spend so little time in the center of the road that we never wear off the yellow line. We're always scraping against this guardrail and then somebody says, you guys are nuts, we, you can't go there. So what do we do? Like you see in the paper, so-and-so overcorrected and flipped his car, okay? That's all we do. So then we're clear over here. That's the story of a lot of church history. It's just back and forth. And one heresy, um, it, it's kind of crazy. Okay, <clears throat> well, I'll let you out early. Um, and I appreciate those of you that had the nerve to come back a second, second week. Let's pray and then we'll be dismissed. Father in heaven, again, I just pray that you would help us learn things 
from your dealings, how Christians dealt with many things that, at least in our generation, we've not faced yet. And we pray that we just learn from it and have a certain appreciation for how you, you shepherded them through all those kinds of things and they kept the faith and made it to heaven. So I pray that this would be profitable to us as a study. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, you are dismissed. <clears throat>